It's been 16 years since 22-year-old master's student Inga Lotz was savagely bludgeoned to death in her Stellenbosch apartment. It's a criminal case that made international headlines, but to this day it continues to confound those who have followed it closely. I'm Catherine Rice, and this is episode two of the Engelot story, A Miscarriage of Justice. In this episode, my co-producer Matthew Brown and I will take you back to the beginning, to the picturesque university town of Stellenbosch. Stellenbosch is a university town in the Cape Winelands, about uh, 50 kilometers away from Cape Town. And to me, Stellenbosch is a bit like a town that's frozen in time. It's not just the Cape Dutch architecture that's uh, maybe 200 years old, but the fact that the old South African apartheid system feels very much alive black population live on one side of the town, the white population live on the other side of the town. So it just feels like it's a town where time stood still, really. For anyone driving through, it's picture perfect. Tree-lined streets and trendy coffee shops, beautiful houses, and the slow pace of a small town. But beneath the surface, across South Africa, there's always the threat of violence. 12 out of every 100,000 women are the victims of murder each year, five times the global average, according to the World Health Organization. But in Stellenbosch, with its numerous churches and pretty streets, there is a pervasive atmosphere of apparent safety. So the university started off actually as a theological seminary for the Dutch Reformed Church, or as we call it, the Engeer Kerk. It's a, a very conservative church, and um, a lot of apartheid leaders were educated in Stellenbosch, including the really the engineer of apartheid, H.F. Verwoerd. It was also the Lotz family's church. Fred, who came from an even smaller town than Stellenbosch, was drawn to his people, an evangelical, charismatic church in stark contrast to the Engeer Kerk. There's been a very rapid rise of evangelical churches, much less established, much less conservative in, in their forms of worship. Um, much more conservative in many ways in their relationship to, to social values. Um, Fred was a member of his people's church, and Inga was in the process of experimenting with, with that church as well. You met author and justice policy advisor Anthony Altbecker in the first episode. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of the case, having attended every court day of the murder trial. He says Inga's parents must have been concerned when Fred introduced her to his people church. I think for their, their parents' generation, those forms of worship are quite alienating. It's seeing it as a sort of sign of instability, something, something weird about him. 
As their relationship deepened, Inga and Fred became frequent letter writers to each other, often exchanging notes and text messages. On the day of her murder at about 10.30 in the morning, Inga met Fred on campus and handed him a letter before he headed off to work. Independent forensic expert David Clatso says the letter became a central part of the police investigation and they would later accuse Fred of hiding it from them. And it was clear that Fred and Inga had, had some sort of disagreement immediately uh, prior to her death within the last 24 hours. Ek is jammer dat jy vanochtend so deur mekaar hier weg is. Ek was aanvankelijk onredelik en toe hier die... Inga apologized that morning and told him she had been unreasonable. Later in the letter, she promises to always be faithful to him. Ek kan ook vandag vir jou beloof het dat ek met Godse genade altyd faithful sal bly en dat ek nooit iets achter jou rug sal doen nie. Later, police investigators would study letters between Inga and her friends, exchanged shortly before her death. They alleged Fred was jealous about her apparent flirtatiousness and rattled by claims of an innocent kiss with another man. Police would make much of Inga's final letter to Fred. To them, it was an indication of motive over a possible issue of infidelity. One of Fred's lawyers, advocate Terry Price, saw the letter in a different light. The note received far too much attention. It was really an innocent note. But the allegations were that Fred and Inga had had a very big fight, and the, the note apparently reflected the big fight. In, in my mind, it didn't. And it appeared to occupy the attention of the trial judge in quite a big way as well. He seemed to place, in my opinion, far too much um, value on it because it was taken completely out of context. The argument that they had, we found out later, was a silly little argument dealing with Fred's brother and really nothing serious. And that note itself and the SMSs that followed are so loving in nature that it is as clear as daylight to me that there was no problems between the two. They loved each other um, and that this was just a short little argument between the couples like happens you know, with all couples. But the letter and the alleged fight supplied the kind of salacious detail the media jumped on. Some details of the police investigation were leaked to the media, sometimes details even Fred's defense team were not aware of, like the fact that police had apparently identified Fred's hammer as the murder weapon. But the press made things very difficult for us. I can just remember one front page article of a newspaper called Die Burger, where there was a picture of Inga and Fred, and in the corner, a picture of Fred's hammer, and the headline was Die Hammer van die Doet, which didn't only imply, it, it said, this is the hammer that killed Ingenos. Nusheen Ofani Gadini, former director of the Witz Justice Project, believes the more the case captured the public's imagination, the more the media latched onto every detail they could find. Murder, unfortunately, is quite common. And so what is it about one case that captures and, and not another? We have some kind of fascination with these kinds of cases and stories, almost like a soap opera. Without understanding the ramifications, the kind of awfulness of it really. In terms of the Inga Lodz case, it might have just been that kind of spectacle of it. And these kinds of fascinations 
are fed by the amount that we kind of read about it and the more you read the more you become interested and so on so when there's more exposure there's a cycle. As more details emerged, Fred was convicted in the court of public opinion. By the time Fred's trial started in 2007, most people had made up their minds that he was guilty, and the prosecution was confident about their three pieces of forensic evidence. The bloody shoe print, Fred's fingerprint on the DVD cover placing him at the scene, and his hammer that police believed had been used to kill Enger and of course the letter, which they believed provided motive. Fred continued to insist that he had been at work all day. He had made a presentation on a new financial product the day before Inga's murder. On the 16th of March, the day of her murder, there was the question and answer session on that presentation. Fred's absence should have been noticed. The question and answer session was even moved to 11 so that Fred could attend a morning class at the university. Remember, that's when Inga handed him the letter. Fred, um, in my view, came in very, very, very young, energetic young man, uh, well-mannered, uh, very confident and bright. I've worked with quite a number of uh, young actual students. They normally come in very, very timid, very quiet uh, and reserved. But Fred, yes, a little bit reserved, but very, very friendly. Uh, what, what stood out for me uh, when, when I kind of actually got to know him was his brilliance and, and, and uh, his mannerisms. That was Mkuseli Mbombu, who was the head of operations of Fred's unit at Old Mutual. He was in the session with Fred that day. Uh, the, this was a select group that was actually sitting in, in this room. It was around the, uh, around the table uh, type of a discussion. We could not have been more than nine in total, so it was a very small select group. So it was very easy to notice who was there. It was very easy to notice who has not been there. And also, from a professional input point of view, we also needed to make sure that all the people that were going to make a contribution are around the table in order for us to, to, to proceed. So it would have been very easy to notice when a person is not there. Mbomvu was adamant that Fred had been there, as were others in the meeting, but police only took their statements three months after the murder. But at the time of this incident, Old Mutual had cameras. Old Mutual had an access control system where you would need to badge your card. Your picture will then appear just to make sure that it is you who is actually getting in and out. I mean, I'm talking even access uh, to the parking areas, very, very, very well controlled and manned by security officers. Uh, I don't believe that it would have made it out of the building undetected. Security cameras showed that Fred had in fact been in the building, but the prosecution argued the system was flawed and that 105 minutes were unaccounted for. We asked around, and rumour has it that you could actually sneak out a back door undetected. Staff members apparently used this when a big rugby or cricket match was on in Cape Town. So here on our left is a very poor community. It's called Clutisville, and because of its poverty, gangs and crime and violence are really rife in that community. 
turning left into Belkhofwanden. This is where Inga lived. Matthew and I decided to test whether there would have indeed been enough time for Fred to have driven to Stellenbosch, committed the murder and then returned to work. Inga's brand new apartment block was on the outskirts of Stellenbosch. The apartment block has an electric gate and buzzer and Inga had a security gate on her front door. She was very security conscious and would not have let a stranger into her flat. For the police, it was even further proof that the killer must have been someone close to her. Fred checked his voice messages on his mobile phone at about 3.30 that afternoon and at around 10 minutes past 5 he was seen at his office cubicle and then sent some emails which gives him about a 105 minutes gap. It took us just under 40 minutes to drive from Inga's flat to the old mutual building in Pinelands. But let's presume you could do it in 35. So with 70 minutes lost to driving, Fred would only have 35 minutes to have Inga let him into her apartment, change his clothes, murder Inga, wash himself, change back into his work clothes and leave the apartment. Is it possible? Maybe. But colleagues said when they saw Fred just after 5pm, he did not look flustered, sweaty or have any blood on him. From my side, I was quite, quite comfortable that I knew what I knew. I, I could not say for sure Fred had murdered somebody or not, but I knew about the fact that he was at work. Fred could not have left Old Mutual, driven to Stenabosch, committed this awful crime, somehow got rid of the clothes which would have been very bloodied, and got back to Old Mutual, to his cubicle, without anyone seeing him. There simply was not enough time for that. Yet the police continued to pursue him as the main suspect. Advocate Terry Price believes the police were strategic in what they did next. The state placed every single witness that they could think of on their list of state witnesses, which in terms of South African law means we cannot consult with them. For Fred's family, it would be critical to now fight back. It was clear that the police were convinced that Fred had done it. Prosecutors were going to prosecute him. Fred had maintained his innocence throughout. What would you do if you were the father of this young man? Um, his father hired a good lawyer. He literally sold the family farm to, to pay for the court fees. And he started to get experts to testify about the problems with the forensic evidence. Initially he asked South African experts. He wasn't entirely satisfied with the quality of their evidence and he started to look abroad. He got some of the biggest guns in the world to look at this evidence. The family also hired a private investigator, Daryl Els. I'd known uh, Fred van der Feyver's dad, Louis, uh, since my days as a policeman in Queenstown. The instructions from Mr. Louis van der Feyver were to visit Cape Town and to determine whether or not his son, Fred van der Feyver, was involved in the murder of Inge Lotz and that we should return with a report in order that he could determine 
whether or not he should uh, put all the support that he could behind his son and arrange for the necessary defense counsel or if he should let his son rot in prison. Those were his exact words. Next, in episode three of the Ingolot story, A Miscarriage of Justice, Fred's fight back begins. We'll explore the state's case against Fred and how horrendous mistakes were made. If they hadn't realized that the evidence was fatally flawed, they need to consult uh, somebody at the school for the blind. My first thought when I saw the fingerprint was that, well, this didn't come from a DVD cover, it came from a, a drinking glass. This episode was produced by Matthew Brown and Catherine Rice for News 24. Audio recording by Matt Gare, Craig Reinefeldt, Alyosha Kolstock and Luke Peters. Music courtesy of Getty Images and Epidemic Sound. Multimedia editors Charlene Roert and Nopatula Maniati. News 24 Editor-in-Chief, Adrian Besson. For other News 24 podcasts, visit our multimedia page where you can find Exodus, White Collar Heist and Missing Matthew. For more exclusive content, subscribe to news24.com.